0: we are in a series called, When the Well Goes Dry. And we're talking about those situations in life where your hopes and dreams are shattered, where you're deeply disappointed, or where the bottom just sort of falls out of your life and you're tempted to despair. If you live in this world very long, the well is gonna go dry, so to speak, in some area of your life. And when it happens, it really hurts. Today, let's look at when the well goes dry on your marriage. Genesis 29 reveals a messy love story with lots of twists and turns in it. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And when we catch up to him in this story today, he has lied to his father, he's cheated his brother, and so to escape the heat of that situation, he left home to live with his uncle Laban. But wouldn't you know it, he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. And we pick the story up here in Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form, and beautiful. So, Rachel was the attractive one. People had oohed and odd all her life about how gorgeous she was. It was pretty obvious to everyone. You know, it's very rare in Scripture that the Bible gives us a physical description of people. So, When it does describe what someone looks like, like it does here, it's usually to highlight that and really make the point clear. And it says of Rachel, as we just read, she was lovely in form and beautiful. And then with Leah, her older sister, it said she, what? Had nice eyes. Now, I'm not sure that's really a compliment. The word nice or weak in the Hebrew language could be translated, as it is in some translations, delicate. It's meant to be a positive thing, but hey, guys, let's be honest. If your buddy has set you up on a blind date and you agree to go on this blind date and you ask your buddy, well, hey, man, what does she look like? And he hesitates for quite a while. And then he says, well, she has nice eyes. That's a red flag right there, okay? So you've got this comparison going on between the two sisters. Rachel, very attractive. Leah, the older one, it says, well, she's got nice eyes. And so you would kind of expect what it says next here in verse 18. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Wow. Is that extravagant love or what? He loves and he wants Rachel so much. He says, look, I'll do do pretty much anything you want. For seven years, I'll work for you if If I can just have your daughter Rachel's hand in marriage and Laban agrees to this arrangement. Verse 20, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Man, this guy is smitten. Seven years feels like only a few days, wow. He is head over heels in love. And then in verse 21, we read, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Now, if Jacob had any romance, it just went out the window with that statement. He started off sounding really sweet and sensitive and kind of romantic. And then quickly, it just kind of goes downhill from there. But let's be honest, seven years is a long engagement. So you can't be too hard on this guy, Jacob. But starting in verse 22, brace yourself, especially if you're new to this story. This epic takes a bizarre turn. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah. Now, what we're about to read here happens as Laban is really tricking Jacob. Jacob thinks he's marrying Rachel, but it's dark and there's no electricity at all. And Jacob has perhaps had a few too many, okay? And Leah is heavily veiled, remember, in this culture as she walks into the bridal chamber. So he takes his daughter Leah and he gave her to Jacob and Jacob lay with her. And I love verse 21. It kind of describes the next morning here in this situation. It says, when morning came, there was Leah. <laughs> Get the picture. It's like Jacob is waking up and he's going, what just happened? What just happened? You see, it's all bright and he rubs his eyes and there's, there's he can't believe it. He, he thought he was marrying Rachel. He ends up marrying Leah. And verse 25 goes on here. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? You can understand why he's so upset. And so he works another seven years for Rachel in order to marry her. It just becomes this huge, complicated mess. I urge you to take your time and read the whole story carefully. But right now, I want us to spend a few minutes talking about how Jacob wakes up and realizes the well has gone dry, so to speak, on his marriage. This happens in just about all marriages. When the day comes and you realize, you know what? I'm not married to the person I thought I was married to. You may even think, who kidnapped my spouse? This is not the person I married. So what do you do in that moment? What do you do when the well goes dry and you feel like the person you married is not the person you thought you were marrying? Let's dive in now and discuss the tragic trajectory that many marriages take. And you may just see yourself somewhere in this trajectory, somewhere in this discussion. Let's face it, Many romantic relationships begin with what you might call infatuation. You feel these strong feelings of wanting this other person and it can become almost an obsession. That in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's actually a gift from God, really, to have this physiological and emotional longing for a meaningful connection with someone. And it can happen so quickly. It catches you off guard. You find yourself doing things you wouldn't normally do. Oh, I'll never forget. I'll never forget when I was dating Debbie. This was a long time ago. This year, in fact, next month, it will be 30 years that we've been married. But when we were dating, I was living in Albany and driving all the way to the Syracuse area where Deb lived with her parents in the town of Baldwinsville. I had to work early on Monday morning, but I would stay as late as I could at her house to get every moment with her I possibly could. You, some of you've been there, you know what this is like, where you just, you just don't wanna leave this person. And I'd often leave after midnight and start on the drive back to Albany. I'd get in the wee hours of the morning, get a couple of hours of sleep, and start work early on Monday morning. I was exhausted, but hey, I was in love. And that infatuation trumped everything. You do things you wouldn't normally do. (laughs) I heard of one married guy who, for his anniversary, his wife gave him a card. And on the front of the card, it said, I love you so much. And then on the inside of the card, as you open it up, it said, I may even shave my legs. Now that's extravagant love, right? You just do these crazy things, even when you're thinking, this is nuts. It doesn't matter because you're so in love. You're so infatuated at this point. By the way, Scripture celebrates that sort of passionate, extravagant love between a husband and wife. I mean, just read the Song of Solomon and we'll need to say no more. The wife says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. And, and God doesn't say, You should be ashamed of yourself. No, God says, Eat, O friends, and drink your fill, O lovers. In other words, God celebrates because this is His idea. It's a wonderful gift that is an important part of marriage. So let's be clear right up front here. Married people, God wants you to be more than business partners. Are you hearing me? He wants you to do more than just pay the bills and tag team the kids and make sure the grass is nicely mowed. God designed marriage as a nurturing context where we can drink deeply of the passions and excitement of our relationship. But here's what happens. The truth is that infatuation phase usually wanes pretty fast. And what I could, would call reality begins to settle in. I, I, I should suppose I should have given a spoiler alert for those of you planning to get married soon. But it happens. Now what do I mean by reality? Well, over time, you begin to notice some things about the person you married that need to be tweaked, right? They need to be changed. For instance, they don't squeeze the toothpaste at the bottom like all rational beings do. No, they just grab the tube anywhere and squeeze it and it looks all out of shape and asymmetrical. That's just not right. They throw their dirty clothes all over the house instead of the laundry basket. They don't clean up after themselves. Or worst of all, they're just insensitive to you at times. And and things that were maybe initially kind of cute or funny actually become downright annoying. In his book, Sacred Marriage, by the way, and I, I believe this is one of the finest books on marriage, ever written. He uses the image in here, Gary Thomas uses the image of an hourglass to talk about young couples and the discomfort that they can expect in marriage. And he, he calls it the infatuation hourglass. He says, the moment you become smitten by someone, the second you find yourself deeply in love is the moment that hourglass gets flipped over. And there's enough sand in the infatuation hourglass on average to last about 12 to 18 months. On occasion, the sand may trickle down a bit beyond that, maybe up to a couple of years, but never by much and not with the same intensity. And this is part of that relationship process. So the big question is, when the sand runs out of the infatuation hourglass, when infatuation kind of descends into reality, how are you going to respond? When that happens, that's where most of us start playing the blame game. You see, we had all these high expectations, they're just not getting met. And so we're getting a hard dose of reality. And most people start blaming, pointing fingers, bringing down the condemnation and the blame. If you would just make more money, if you would just break away from your controlling mother, we could have a decent marriage. If you would just take better care of yourself, if you would just spend more time at home, if you would just show more affection. Listen, marriage has a way of changing us, but it is not your job to change your spouse. It's not your job. And the harder you try, the more frustrated you're going to feel. Listen, when infatuation is gone and you're feeling that strong dose of reality, it's not the time to blame and shame. That's the time to look inside yourself and ask, what's going on here? Maybe God wants you to take a long look in the mirror Maybe you should examine your own attitudes and mindset. It's not saying that your your spouse has nothing wrong, but you should look in the mirror at those moments and examine yourself and perhaps you should examine your expectations. Maybe they were totally unrealistic to begin with. So let me say this as clearly as I can, a healthy marriage should change both partners for the better. But let me say it again, lest it gets lost. Dear friend, it is not your job to change your spouse. So we've gone from infatuation with all of its excitement to reality with all of its frustration and pain. And here's what I've noticed in talking with many, many couples through the years. When you live in that frustrating reality zone very long, it can lead to deep, deep discouragement. I see that as sort of a third stage. You start thinking, my story was supposed to be different. I ought to be feeling better than this. Maybe I just married the wrong person. And you start feeling deeply discouraged Like the well has gone dry on your marriage. By the way, I think that's the position that Leah was in, in our our text here, in this story. She loves her husband, Jacob, and she desperately longs to be loved in return, but it just doesn't feel that way. Now, let's, let's kind of pause here for a moment. Put yourself in Leah's sandals for just a minute. She's got this younger sister who's always outshone her. Her sister is talented and beautiful, and so she naturally gets most of the attention. Think of this. Leah has a dad who is so desperate to marry her off, he has to trick this naive guy into marrying her. And then you've got Jacob, her husband, who never wanted her to begin with. Think about that. What a lousy deck of cards Leah has been dealt. My guess is that all her life she's felt lesser than, and she feels it now more than ever. So she makes it her goal to get rid of that feeling. Let's look at our story again here in verse 32. It says here in verse 32, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. In other words, she's thinking, surely he's going to want me now after I've given birth to a son. And then verse 33 says, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. In other words, God knew I'm living in this unfulfilling marriage. And so he's given me a child. Maybe my child will be enough to fill this vacuum deep inside of me because I'm not getting validation from my husband. You see, there's still something within her that just longs to be loved and feel like she's enough. And then we read on in verse 34. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Doesn't he see the effort I'm making, in other words? I've given him three sons, what more can I do? Maybe now I'll be enough for him to to truly love me. And we'll finally, finally have a fulfilling marriage. By the way, while we're putting the spotlight today on Leah, this experience can happen to husbands and wives just the same. It just manifests itself a little bit differently. After living with discouragement long enough, many husbands just kind of check out mentally and emotionally and start trying to fill that void with hobbies or, or more hours at work. Many women, after living for years with deep discouragement, just emotionally disengage and think, I can't stand the pain of this. I can't. Take this pain of continuing to hope and just having my hopes dash again and again. It's probably just not meant to be. And all too many couples are like ships passing in the night and sometimes, sometimes they don't even care anymore. Please listen to me. That is the scariest stage of all. They've gone from apathy to reality, to deep discouragement, and now they settle into this fourth stage of just apathy. They don't know how to change and they're not sure they really care. I wonder, has the well gone dry on your marriage? As you think about infatuation and reality and discouragement and apathy, Do you see yourself anywhere on that progression? See, the whole premise of this series, dear friends, is that how you respond when the well goes dry says a whole lot about your understanding of who God is and what He's doing. You can't convince me God wants you to settle for an apathetic marriage. I just don't believe it. And here's what concerns me the most. When you live with that sort of lifeless apathy long enough, it becomes so much easier to say, let's just throw in the towel. Let's just give up. So as we wrap up today, my challenge to you is, please, please don't quit. You see, you can learn more when the well goes dry than you learned at any other time in your relationship. God is not finished. Don't quit. The point where we feel like quitting is the very point. Hear me now. The point where we feel like quitting is the very point at which we need to stand and fight for our future, fight for the future of our marriage. I'm just convinced that God is not finished with you yet. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So put your hope in God. That's what Leah ultimately did. She's done her best to be enough and earn her husband's love. It's a losing battle. She's been a faithful wife giving birth to three sons, but the strategy of winning her husband's love simply has not worked. But then she gives birth to a fourth son. And I'm gonna read here from verse 35. Notice, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, notice those words, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, think of that, Judah. Judah is the Hebrew word for praise. This time I will praise the Lord. What a shift of perspective that is. Instead of putting her hope in her husband, she puts her hope now in God. And God has a good plan for Leah and her family. In fact, in scripture, Jesus, Jesus Christ our Lord, is called the Lion of Judah. Judah is Leah's fourth son. Judah became the head of the family line through which Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, came into this world. It wasn't what she expected, but ultimately, ultimately, Leah finds her desires met not by her husband, but in God. The Bible says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that is my prayer for us, that God would stoke up our love and desire for our mate as we learn to delight ourselves in him. You delight yourself in your husband or your wife. And I want to tell you, that has very limited fulfillment. If he or she is your source of delight, you're going to be disappointed no matter how wonderful they may be. Listen, love your spouse, but love God more. Love your spouse, but love God more. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, that is to say, when we give him the desires of our heart, God has an amazing way of changing us from the inside out. And over time, after you've given him the desires of your heart, he gives you the desires of your heart. But it all begins by loving him supremely more than anything else in this whole world. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today for those couples out there that in their relationship have settled into a hard dose of reality. And some of them have become deeply, deeply discouraged. They think this isn't what I signed up for. This relationship is just not fulfilling. This is not the storybook marriage I thought I would have. Lord, I'm concerned about those who've even gone from deep discouragement into that apathy zone, and they've just kind of given up on it all. Father, I pray today that they would delight themselves in you and that in giving you all the desires of their heart, Lord, you would give them the desires of their heart. Help them to love you more than anything in this whole world. And in doing so, may they find the abundant life that they always longed for. And I pray all of this in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.